0: Uh, how many of you appreciated last Sunday morning uh, Michael Pierce bringing the Father's Day message? Michael, I know you're here. Give a little wave. Uh, if you did not have a chance to tune in or be present uh, this past Sunday, just a fantastic heart message. Um, you, you honored the generations. You honored the house. You honored um, the relationship between young and old. And you help to create an understanding of the Father's heart. And that's so needed today. And I thank you for doing that with such eloquence and care. So we love you and Anne and all that you represent here in our city. Uh, go back, have a listen on one of our media platforms for sure. It was a fantastic Sunday. Today, as I mentioned, is our final week of Future Church. This has been a journey to say the least uh, many of you have been with us from week one all the way to now. We started this 10 weeks ago. In there was Mother's Day and Father's Day, where we take those breaks to really highlight uh, what that means to our families here. But in the midst of these weeks together, we have been tackling, how do I say, some of some very challenging topics. Uh, I have not received the feedback and the uh, interaction like I have in a series for a long, long time uh, with Future Church. We have not uh, held back, I say. I mean, there's, there's still other places to go, and we will go there uh, when I get the courage to do so. But in the meantime, uh, I, th- I felt that what was given and represented over these weeks was exactly where the Lord wanted us to go. And uh, if you didn't have a chance to listen to some of these messages from our team, uh, please go back. Have a listen. Uh, There's some very key things culturally that are very relevant and things that we are talking about in our everyday, certainly. There is not an absence of conversation right now when it comes to uh, the people around us, when it comes to the culture that we are in today in 2021, but really as important is the family of God and how without unity and without connection with each other, generationally as well as theologically, as well as um, through the different uh, uh, families of God that are all around the world, we have to find a rhythm together. And a part of what this series has been about is to challenge us to... Really, to be able to celebrate at times each other's differences and celebrate where we don't always agree, but knowing that we can abide together in Christ with unity at the forefront of all that we do. Who's with me? So, so, so important. Uh, Today, I finished with something so deep on my heart. Uh, it, It was actually shifted quite a bit uh, on Monday, this past Monday, where I had a very wonderful conversation with Dawn. Uh, Dawn Crocker, are you in the room? She's right there. She called me. You didn't even realize this, but it changed my whole week. And uh, she's like, what is he going to say? Um, we, we were getting into just some some conversation about church and some practical things that she had questions about. And then we got to the topic of something that we've branded here called CLA Cares. CLA Cares. Essentially, that is our our local church mission to our urban city, to Calgary. What are we doing as a church to be the hands and feet of Jesus all around our city? Uh, Hannah, who is Dawn's daughter, has overseen this uh, initiative this last year, year and a half, and... I have to say with full disclosure, when Don asked me about this on Monday, one of the first thoughts in my head was, oh, that's still going on. And it wasn't a surprise, but it was more of a reality check on how much my mind has shifted to things that matter, but also I, I have shifted gears with things that really matter and how God so gently and so beautifully through my dear friend brought me back to a place of real perspective on the things that we need to be thinking about and considering and embracing as a church as we move forward. Now, what does that all mean? I'll get into that as I share my heart this morning. I want to read from a famous, famous passage. It does not matter if you grew up in the church or if you are completely removed from Scripture. Maybe you've never even opened up the Bible. Probably majority of humanity knows about this story. That's the story where Christ goes berserk in the temple. Anybody? We all know that story. And in light of this market that's coming in in a few weeks from now, as well as my conversation with Don... The the Lord brought me full circle into a a study of this passage of Scripture, and I want to look at an investment into something that I believe matters so much. We're going to look at justice, mercy, and peace this morning in a culture that surrounds us of this social adaptation that we are so, uh, I guess, connected to, and easily entangled by as we allow ourselves to be influenced at times by the opinions and the pressures that surround. Let's look at this in Mark 11, verse 11 to 24. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached out, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were bullying and selling, or bullying, excuse me, Probably, who were buying, I'll get there, buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, for these brief moments in our week. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and to speak, speak to our hearts, transform our lives. Lord, I have thought and I have study that I want to communicate today, but if it is not your spirit that comes and penetrates, to the deepest of our, of our soul, into our heart posture, then change is only temporary. I pray today that through these few minutes that we have, you will transform our thinking, remind us of what is most valuable, remind us of why we exist as a church, as a faith community, remind us of our mandate. Encourage us to, to move towards a posture that's not comfortable but produces incredible value in our life and the lives around us. Lord, I just pause right now and I and I say, speak, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very famous moment, as I mentioned, in the life of Jesus. So famous, in fact, that all four Gospels have this story in their writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That doesn't always happen, as we know. There's only actually five accounts of story where all five Gospels talk about, or four Gospels talk about it, and there's some more accounts of it, too, through some of the the New Testament, and That tells us something. That tells us that what was taking place here matters most. Even some scholars say, because we know that uh, John wrote his book with this story more at the front end of his writings, And the other guys, it was later on more chronological. Now, there's argument around this with scholars saying why this was or if there's more to it. Some would say, some theologians would say, and and scholars would say that potentially Jesus actually ended up doing this twice in the temple, not just once. And it's almost like there's a bookend of the passion that Christ had for these things that matter Now, let me explain that to you as we unpack this phenomenal story of Jesus and how he handled some things that meant so much to him. Whether it's once or twice, this story, I believe, is in a company all of its own. An event so important, as I said, that he, he bookended his ministry potentially with making sure that humanity understood what was going on here and why this meant so much to him and why there was such a conviction about the way he handled it and how he, uh, he represented the heart of God. I want to break this into three scenes. How many of you like movies? There's a few of us in this room. We're going to break this into three scenes. Number one is mercy. Number two is justice. And thirdly is peace. This is what Christ created and what the example he brought forth for all of us to glean from as we look at this today. Scene one is mercy. I'm reminded of a story that I heard about a man named John Perkins. Some of you have maybe heard of John. He was an African-American gentleman who was born in the 1930s in Mississippi, the Deep South. If we connect history with time, with challenge, all of us would realize that this was a very difficult place in history for a black man to be in Mississippi. He fled as soon as he could when he got a bit older, that region. But then later, through God's prompting, he returned to start a ministry for the next generation, caring for children who were experiencing the same kind of challenges and pain and prejudice that he once faced as a child. In fact, two of his kids were the very first two black kids in a white school in Mississippi at the time. It was Mendendall High. They were the very first two that entered this school who were enrolled. And when they enrolled in that year, something miraculous was taking place. There was almost a sort of renewal that started to happen within the high school where there was a a chapel time for the students. This is now in the 1960s. And over the course of that year, Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of students started to find Jesus for the first time. It was almost like a revival broke out in the the high school where there were kids coming down to the front of their classrooms, sobbing, meeting Jesus in salvation during their school hours. How many of you would love to witness that? But I must say this, this is what's most fascinating about this story is that in those two years that the Perkins kids were enrolled at this school, this high school. Listen, not a single student or classmate ever spoke to them in the hallway or sat with them at the cafe for lunch, ever. For two years. So you've got this dichotomy of, of story. Somehow the walk down the aisle to meet Jesus had been for lack of better words, divorced from the walk across the cafeteria to learn the name of the marginalized. Do you see the disconnect there? Clearly we do. So before we get to how Jesus said it in this passage of Scripture, in this story, we first need to understand after his temple tirade what exactly Jesus said. Mark eleven seventeen. 17, as I read, it is not written, my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's a lot of context in this verse, even this section house of prayer. Jesus is actually borrowing this line from the prophet Isaiah, most known for rebuking Israel for divorcing Uh, private spirituality like prayer and scripture meditation divorcing that from public spirituality like caring for the poor and the work of justice that's what he was alluding to this this line of den of robbers well those are jeremiah's the prophet jeremiah's words to rebuke the priests of his time during exile. Jesus explains to the priests of his day, you think you are the people of God, but truth is, you are on the wrong side of the story. Similar to this encounter he had with some other priests a few years prior, if you remember this. Why do you eat, Jesus, with tax collectors and sinners? In response, Jesus quoted another prophet. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When Jesus offered a critique of the temple or church, he had the habit of quoting these prophets. And each time, he's using respective prophets' prophetic voices to deliver a common, very common message. And this message is summed up in one Hebrew word that I want you to learn today, and it's seduc. Not saduko. Great game. But this is something different. You can see it up on the screen there, spelled very unique. This biblical term for personal righteousness is this word. And the biblical Hebrew term for outward justice is, guess what, also this word. Righteousness and justice meaning the same thing. This is very important. That means that when you read the Old Testament, you can sub out righteousness and justice with each other every single time because in the heart of God, it actually is the same thing. This means biblically speaking, you cannot separate personal righteousness from outward works of justice and mercy. To be righteous is to care for the poor and to care for the poor is to be righteous. And just. The prophets keep hammering home this point. You are trying to separate something that God had joined together personal righteousness and outward justice. And many have summed up this prophetic message this way where the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land, and the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups of society fared while you were alive. Wow. Something to certainly think about this morning. Based on that standard, how are we doing? How is Calgary doing? How is the church of Calgary doing? What is the reputation of the church during these times that we are living amongst the weakest and most vulnerable groups of our city, of our province, of our country? Our standing with God does not only rest on private, personal spirituality, but how we stand with the marginalized. That is something we have to consider and think about where Christ said I desire mercy not sacrifice hindsight makes it so easy for us to see the dysfunctional spirituality of the temple in first century or in high school in the american south in the 60s but what about what about us are we susceptible to the same conditions that i'm calling spiritual wellness just cloaked in a new disguise, in a new time, in a new culture. What are we missing today that the Lord is trying to highlight to us? These things that Nadia so beautifully presented this morning in our pre-service prayer. These moments of, God, we don't want to miss what you have in store. I believe some of these things in here are at the core of where God is leading us. I think spiritual wellness is a place where like Calgary might sound, in Calgary might sound something like this. And you've heard this before, uh, joking aside where I'm vegan and I, I do yoga three times a day and, I, and I've got a very simple wardrobe and I practice the way of Jesus. That makes me incredibly spiritual. Everything on this list is fine, whatever. But if it's not spent on the other side of, of, of it being just a lifestyle, really, we, we have to see that. It's not spirituality, but in fact, just a lifestyle. We try to merge these things together to make it feel like we found this rhythm, but in fact, we're missing something so, so important. If your discipleship with Jesus is not edging you, increasing you towards that, the marginalized, this same disconnect is alive and well within you. I've asked myself that question all week. Cloaked in a clever disguise of a new time and a new place, but in fact, it's just the same thing that looks a little bit different. Jesus raised the bar when he arrived. We all know that in so, so many ways. In the Old Testament, this is interesting one out of 10 verses is about how we actively care for the poor. When Jesus arrived, it, was, it now turned into one out of six verses. He upped the game. Jesus said that God is in the poor and how you treat them is how you treat the Lord. Mercy is not an optional expression of worship for certain Christians who have a particular bent towards social justice. It is inseparable part of what it means to follow Jesus. We have to see that. That is why a lady by the name of Dorothy Day, when she was asked, how do you live out the gospel? Her answer was simply this, stay close to the poor. My question for all of us again this morning is, is your discipleship to Jesus increasing your proximity towards towards the marginalized of our city? Proximity is the antidote to cure our spiritual wellness. Matthew 9, verse 13, go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a relational kind of learning, a relational kind of sharpening. Barbara Goodson from Houston, Texas, who started using her day off to to cut the hair of, of the homeless. We hear stories about this all the time. We've got people like that at the Dream Center here on McLeod Trail using their time to invest into people that are less fortunate. She figured out a way to use what she had to increase the dignity of the undignified. I love that. Increasing the dignity of the undignified. How am I doing that in my life? Where are the pressure points of our city, Calgary, that happen to meet the resources and passions of our faith community here at CLA. There is an invitation waiting for us and we're gonna go find it this year. I thought I'd get a little more excitement from you. Now there are certainly some areas and some avenues that we are a part of and will continue to be a part of. And I believe the Lord is opening this door into some new understanding of what this means for our church. To really see the brilliance of Jesus and that tirade in the temple, we're going to need to get a little technical for a few minutes and to understand the blueprint and the rules because the house Jesus entered was not open to everyone. If you understand the temple and how it was built and the process before the new covenant, before his death, burial, and resurrection. There were some very key laws and guidelines in place. You were certain that not everybody got inside that gate, even that outer gate of the temple. That's where this gathering was taking place, was just inside the gate. That gate represented so many things, And all of us really, I believe, need to make a posture right now to just understand exactly what was going on here. They were turned away at the door at times. Some people that even wanted to get inside that first gate were turned away. Among those people, of course, were the terminally ill and the disabled. They could not get through because sadly at this time, it was believed that chronic illness, physical pain was, was a divine curse. The cause of illness was that you did something so bad that God had to give you a terminal disease. And you are not bringing that curse into a holy place. That was the deeply flawed logic of this time when Jesus was on the ground. That's the house Jesus entered. Now, let me show you the house Jesus leaves after he does a bit of rearranging. Go to Matthew 21. This is Matthew's account. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant, indignant, angry, furious. Do you see what Jesus has done? He brought the blind and the lame in with him, the disqualified. And Jesus entered the temple and then made room for the marginalized to come in behind him. Again, as we increasingly build momentum here at CLA, how are we making room for these types of things by the way of rearranging in our community? I'm asking myself this question so much lately. The first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. That's Stanley. I love this. Only when we become the picture of an altogether different society do we we actually have something better to offer than the culture around us. It starts inside, it starts on a personal conviction. The chapter of this community was about setting a table with a feast so satisfying that you never hunger again. And then the next chapter needs to be about filling the table with a guest list that only makes sense in the kingdom of God. That's what we're seeing in the gospels here. Gregory Boyle says it like this. Cruz spent his last dollars taking a Metrolink train 60 miles to Los Angeles from San Bernardino, where he has relocated his lady and newborn to avoid the dangers and desperations of his previous gang life. He had a part-time job but could not get his boss to give him hours. And now he sits in my office rattling off a list of pressures and needs of his family. With no safety net in sight but me, he speaks of no food in the fridge no lights, landlords looming, and no bus fare. When he finishes this breathless account, crew stops, shaken and exhausted. He grows teary-eyed and says quietly, I just keep waiting for what Gregory asks. For the last to be first. How about for C.L.A.? Can we make the last first in this season and moving forward? Where does this start? Where does this look different for us as a church? I move to scene two, justice. That's what Jesus said. Now let's look at how he said it in this area with justice. He enters this temple court and rages. He's almost, he's got like a homemade whip with him. You all remember that. And he's leading a stampede down the temple steps. The meek and the mild Savior is now furious. We can picture this in that moment. Verse 11 of Mark chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12th. Now, that verse is so important because there's meaning here. Jesus did not act impulsively. This was not a moment of emotion. He was actually there prior. He mulled things over, and then he slept on them. And then the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So we see that this is not a crime of passion or a moment of passion. This is more like Ocean's Eleven. Did anyone get that? (laughs) What is Jesus so worked up about? That's what we have to figure out. Now, this part of the story takes place in the court of the Gentiles, which is just inside the outer gate. So you are in the temple, but you are still on the outer courts of the temple. Temples divided into layers, and even if you got into the outer gate, there was still restrictions to access, obviously, the the place where God resided in the Holy of Holies. If you were of the chosen race, that was the only people getting past the courtyard, hence why they called it the Court of the Gentiles, because if you're not Jewish, you did not pass that area. Where did the priests set up this marketplace? Well, that's where it was, right in this court, in the Gentile only place of worship and prayer. By estimates, this is so interesting. Listen to this. By estimates, as they were selling even doves, for example, that a dove would cost 12 times as much money inside the temple gates as they would outside the gates. There was even a currency exchange where the sanctuary shekel was the only acceptable form of payment. That's how they made sure that you bought inside the gates. There was a ton of abuse and manipulation that was going on here. If you didn't realize this, let me explain it to you. They were ripping people off that were trying to purchase forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what God was so worked up about. Mercy is about humanizing and dignifying and serving this who are forced to live on the margins of our society. And justice is about correcting the systems and structures that marginalize them in the first place. That's what was going on here in this passage of scripture. In this story, Jesus did not only invite the blind in, but then he also turned over tables He didn't only serve the victimized by the system, he also called the system what it was, and then he bent it towards justice. And then he calls us, you and I, followers of Christ, to do both, mercy and justice. Jesus, I believe, is about revival in the classroom and racial justice in the school system. He's about feeding the hungry and about systematic poverty. He's about visiting the prisoner and mass incarceration. He's about going to margins, to the margins to serve down uh, those that are down and out and making room for them in seats around us at our tables in our homes. That's the God we serve. Jesus does both, and he calls us to do the same. But what happens when we do one without the other? What happens when we serve the victimized with one hand while benefiting from the systems that victimize them with the other? What happens when the cultural status quo becomes the lens with which we view Jesus rather than Jesus being the lens through which we interpret the culture and society around us? This is what happens. Kenneth Leach says, the church then becomes a resource of the culture and no longer its critic. Theology becomes a servant of social order. The God of justice is tamed and put at the service of organized injustice. Ouch. When the church practices mercy without justice, We are treating the systems while ignoring the disease. We are caring for the victims of a corrupt system without turning over the tables of the system that put them there in the first place. And that's what we need to shift our thinking in. The prophetic words of Amos in the Old Testament, he says it like this. I, I pulled the message version because it's, It articulates it so well. He says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's paraphrased scripture from Eugene Peterson in the message, Amos chapter five. You can trace the spread of the early church. This is so fascinating. As I was looking into this, where at the time, a female was obviously considered less than in these times in history. And with that taint of, of perspective on humanity, that's when sex trade and slavery, all of those things started to begin during these days and years and decades prior and they say that you can now you can spread or spread the a trace of the early church by actually tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery through the Roman Empire. The most reliable index for the early church spread is the legal overturning of sexual violence against victimized women. Isn't that fascinating? That sounds like justice and good news to me. Justice about setting right of what got thrown off balance in the fall. Dr. Cornell West says, love is public. Love pu- is public is called justice. That's what flipping the tables in the courtroom of the Gentiles was all about. A profound act of love by Christ himself where Jesus took in the sight, he went back home, he laid awake all night, I'm sure, burdened for those who knowing the father had all these additional hurdles and obstacles to get through to get to his presence. So he went back the next day and he cleared the way for everyone. That's justice. That's what this was about. And that brings me to scene three where we focus on peace. In this memoir, there's a neurosurgeon that I discovered. His name was Dr. Paul. He describes a particularly trying day in his residency. Some of you are connected to the medical field. Some doctors in this room are watching online today. We love you. We thank you for all that you do. Nurses, doctors, all our frontline workers. And this this story just brought me back to my own personal journey in hospital with my child with Sparrow but he describes this day in residency where he guided this couple through labor and delivery, where he got to celebrate with them the birth of their firstborn child. Many of us in this room have been there, only to realize very quickly that something was incredibly wrong with this young life. And he writes it like this, and I quote, driving home later that night, after gently explaining to a mother that her newborn had been born without a brain and would die shortly, I switched on the radio. NPR was reporting on the continuing drought in California. Suddenly, tears were streaming down my face. This is what he writes in this memoir about his, his experience with this family at the very beginning of his practice this reminds me of that movie hotel rwanda anybody seen that movie fantastic there's that point where the cameraman finally gets close enough to the suffering to capture it firsthand he's right in the mix of what's going on in rwanda and he turns excitedly to the reporter beside him and he says Look at this. We finally are going to get somewhere. When the world sees this footage, there's going to be change. And the reporter quickly responds. He says it like this in the movie. I'll bet they will go on just eating their dinner. The pain that we interact with close up has the power to soften or harden our hearts. It either opens us up to suffering or it numbs us and causes us to build up walls to ignore the pain that is around us all the time. That's what happens. So what makes the big difference? What separates the detached, the cynical news reporter from the neurosurgeon who is weeping on his way home? What is the difference? What's the disconnect to the connection? It's very simple. The, 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 the missing piece that was there for one and not for the other was relationship. Relationship. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who I've quoted a few times in this series, says, only love gets close enough to know. The doctor got close enough to know a name, a face, and a story to touch the suffering with his very own hands and that's what made the difference in his life. That's what caused the deep connection. We know what Jesus said in the temple and then how he said it, but the peace portion is about who Jesus said it with. The temple cleaning and tirade was not about a crime of passion. That means he wasn't staying in Jerusalem. It means that he was traveling back and forth in and out, as we see through Bethany. Each day, where he was laying his head at night in this place outside of Jerusalem. Since it was already late, as the scripture says, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He's living and, and, and staying in Bethany. And later on, Mark even gets more specific with this in his gospel. He says, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leopard, Now, we have to catch this because Jesus is in the middle of building relationship with the marginalized. And that's what triggered so much of what he experienced in the temple. Like I said, this was not a crime of instant passion. This was a moment of recognizing injustice. That is where Jesus was eating his meals. He was laying his head, having coffee in the morning. And really for the last week, that's where he had been and who he was with. Fact is that to enter the home of a leper, you would have, it would have made Jesus unceremonially unclean. That's that's a big deal. Why is this even more of a big deal? Because when you you would have to undergo rigorous, time-consuming Levitical cleansing to, to then enter back into the temple after spending time with the leopard, not to mention being in his home for seven days. And even more than that, this was Passover time. The most important time of year, Jesus is going after something. He's expressing And giving us this model of the true heart and passion of Jesus. As a Jewish rabbi who he was, willing to make himself unclean at Passover. He went out and he was called contaminated by associating himself with outsiders. He was cutting himself off from the former father's presence at the highest of high holidays. And Jesus was saying in effect, if he is not fit for my father's house neither am I. I love that. He did more than just invite them onto his turf. He actually got comfortable in their surroundings, on their turf. Jesus told a very unique parable a little bit later, and that actually makes a bit of sense of all that I'm explaining this morning as we come to a close here. There it was in Luke 16. He says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is such a a unique parable the parable skips ahead to the death of both men where Lazarus is now in heaven, the rich man is not and he can see heaven off in the distance and he he cries out, he cries out to Abraham. Verse 27, I beg you father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's take a deeper look at this and what it means. The rich man allows Lazarus, a homeless man with leprosy, to live at the front of his gate. Why did Jesus use the name Lazarus? We would say that this was probably one of Christ's best friends other than the disciples. But he used this name, Lazarus, out of probably an incredible purpose. I asked this question, how many of you have a homeless, terminally ill person living on your property? I don't know if any of us do. This, this wasn't a sin of mercy that, that is being unpacked here. It was a sin of relationship. He did not see him as family. He did not embrace him as a brother. He did not enter into that suffering with him. He kept him at a distance as a particular project. Why? Because isolated acts of generosity and mercy are easier than welcoming someone all the way in so that they can be redeemed. I've been guilty of that. I'm the first one to put up my hand. The Pharisees were never offended that Jesus would serve the poor or be a missionary to the marginalized. That wasn't the issue. They were offended that he would recline at their table with them and when he did it during the week. Look at at them eye to eye and, and associate with them as family and call them brothers and sisters. That's what the religious were offended by. Richard Rohr says, I still feel that our culture and frankly, much of our peace and justice work is dominated by very fragile egos. The self that begins the journey is not the self that arrives at the gospel. The self that begins is the self we think ourselves to be, the superior self we want to be. This is the self that dies along the way until no one is left This is the true self, the self bigger than death, yet born of death, a different self than the private, a self transformed by God and transformed in God. Those born of such death will be the deepest agents of peace and justice. Incredible. When we stop staying at a safe distance and get close enough to know That's when we are transformed in a way that we can truly transform others. That's it. That's when we die to ourselves to become fully alive in Christ. That's what it means to be in peace. Peace is expressed between two people. When we do that, when we express between two of us, that's called kingship. It's the word, again, shalom in Hebrew. Peace with all things, getting close enough to love, it's inconvenient, but let me tell you, it makes a big difference in one's life. David Finch, while most churches have programs to reach out to the homeless, the destitute or broken, rarely do we minister to them by making them a part of our congregations. Our local congregations look strangely homogenous in comparison to our vision and programs. Let me just say this, church. And I, I have strong conviction about this in my heart. It's not enough just to serve the poor. Jesus did not call us to charity. He called us to family. Our call as a community is to share the whole of our lives, not a specified allotment of time, to love people into the kingdom of God. Calgary is waiting on a different kind of faith community. Can the last be first in our church. Hard words, hard questions, wrestling through this in my own life, my own heart. If our spiritual formation is not increasingly moving us towards the marginalized and changing the makeup of this family when we gather here or in our homes, if it's not making us more uncomfortable at first but more alive in the end, Then please go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That is my challenge to all of us. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. An invitation to discover Jesus in a place where he is absolutely promised to be found. That's it, he promises that. It's in the eyes of the marginalized. Now, I know I share these words with conviction this morning, but I, I don't come today with a rebuke. I come with an invitation. That's what I felt the Lord say to my heart. Tim, this is not a rebuke. This is an invitation into a journey towards maybe looking at things just a little bit differently as a local church, we know that our heart and our posture here has been all season to go where God desires to take us. And I do believe that these areas are absolutely at the foundation of God's heart. And I want to be known for a place that doesn't just serve the poor and the marginalized and the disconnected but where we actually open up our lives and our homes and our church community to love people out of relationship and personal friendship into the kingdom of God. What does that look like? What can that look like for our lives? Let's stand this morning. Just something easy to think about as we start summer. My prayer is as you transition your day, that you would not leave here feeling judged. Certainly not. But there's something about really digging into why Jesus did what he, what he did. Everything Christ did was intentional. Who's with me? everything. And he only did what he felt his father tell him to do. So these moments where we can create a narrative around why he did what he did, in fact, potentially could look a little bit different than what we've been taught or what we just naturally think is his reasons. And for me, this is just a beautiful picture of the heart of God where righteousness and justice are actually the same thing and we can do this with intentionality and the grace of our father and it's not comfortable it's incredibly uncomfortable and it's hard and it takes sacrifice but the reward on the other side of in our own hearts is this this revelation of the heart of the father and nothing is comparable than truly understanding the heart of God. That's what brings longevity and resilience. That's what brings courage beyond our own strength. But unless we go there, we'll never get there in our spirit and in our heart. That's what I leave us with as we close out this series, Future Church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these minutes that we had in this day. We are heading into, really have been in and continuing in some very hot, hot days. I love every minute of it. And we can get distracted by the uncomfortability of heat and maybe a lack of even air conditioning in our homes. That's maybe why some are here this morning, just to find some air conditioning. (laughs) I'm okay with that. But Lord, with a smile on my face and just care in my heart for each of us, would even some of that uncomfortableness of these days translate into thought and idea and perspective for our church and for each of us as individuals on how you desire to move us forward as a church. With these days where we're sweating all day long, and it it's going to be like that this week and we're uncomfortable and we're overwhelmed. Would 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 our thoughts not be consumed by our own needs and our own challenge and our own uncomfortability, these temporary things? But would, would those moments in the physical translate to a supernatural revelation of what people are walking through and going through every single day, never feeling quite like they have a place, like they belong, always uncomfortable, always challenged by what's in front of them, feeling marginalized, feeling overwhelmed, feeling alone. Lord, would you do that? I just, I pray that we would come through this week with a new understanding of your heart for humanity. And as we close these These weeks out, Lord, would you seal the challenges that have been presented deep within so that we can come out the other side different and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. God bless you as you go. Enjoy each other. Enjoy lunch together. Care for one another. Let's continue this conversation as we move into the summer. Hopefully, we'll see many, many of you on Friday night, 6 p.m. It is family barbecue night here at CLA. Come join us for some hot dogs and hamburgers. It's going to be a fantastic time together. Have a great day.